Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me as we kick off another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. And we're going to be, in the first segment of today's program, we're going to look at what's going on in Ohio. Abortion is taking center stage in the uh, voting tomorrow, and it will prove to be the latest indicator of where the pro-life debate sits, I think, uh, here in the Midwest anyways. Uh, We're urging people to vote no on issue one. My guest will be uh, Peter Range, who's the CEO of Ohio Right to Life, and uh, pick up from Peter how he's reading uh, the way the public is thinking and feeling on this. So that's coming up today. Also, uh, Joseph Browdy, uh, who I haven't talked with before, is president of the Center for Peace Communications. I came across his work last week, a little documentary called Whispered in Gaza. He and his team have been weaving in and out of Gaza for a while now and getting some idea of what ordinary Palestinians think about Hamas, what they think about the war and these cascading tragedies. I'm going to let him tell us what he's hearing Uh, from these citizens of Gaza. I'm going to take some time to talk about the dangers of not remembering the past, because I, uh, listening to these student protesters and their chants, uh, I have to say, despite their privileged position at America's most prestigious universities, these are men and women who simply don't know the past. They don't know the history of the institutions, the nation states that they're talking about. The second hour today, though, we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Holly Ordway. She has written a magnificent magisterial book called Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography. Now, you know, biographers in the past have not really put Tolkien's faith front and center. They will not be able uh, to avoid putting his faith front and center now that Holly's work is out there. She'll be spending time with us, and we'll get to know what his faith was like, what his devotions were like, how he dealt with his uh, children and his friends, including C.S. Lewis. But first, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, November 6th. It's the Feast of St. Leonard of Noblack. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Pro-lifers in Ohio are gearing up for tomorrow's vote on Issue 1. The proposed amendment would enshrine abortion in the state constitution and remove virtually all limitations. Peter Rain from Ohio Right to Life has more right after the news. There's more courtroom drama in Manhattan as former President Trump takes a witness stand at his civil fraud trial. 
While on the stand, Trump spoke at length about the values of his properties. The judge cut him off at one point, getting agitated and threatened to excuse Trump for giving speeches instead of answers to questions. Trump's lawyers butted in, saying Trump's describing why there was no intent to mislead anyone with financial statements. While the former president did address reporters beforehand, calling the case political warfare and election interference. You have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements. The state attorney general is seeking a $250 million fine and a ban on Trump's company from doing business in the state. Scott Pringle, NBC News Radio, New York. The White House expects more humanitarian aid to flow into Gaza within days. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with his Turkish counterpart in Ankara today to discuss efforts to expand aid to the Gaza Strip. Blinken is touring the region to try to ease the tensions over the war. He made stops in Baghdad and the occupied West Bank. Senators from Maine are demanding answers from the Army after reservists killed 18 people in Maine last month. Senator Susan Collins and Angus King sent a letter to the U.S. Army Inspector General asking about concerns Army personnel raised about Robert Card's mental health and actions taken in response. Card was in the Army Reserves and had a history of mental illness before carrying out the shooting in Lewiston. From your Alvi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Ohio votes on issue one tomorrow. Issue one uh, would allow for late-term abortions in Ohio through all nine months of pregnancy, would eliminate parental rights, would eliminate health and safety standards for women in our state. And to help us enter more deeply into what's at stake in tomorrow's vote, We've asked Peter Range to join us. Peter is the CEO of Ohio Right to Life. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at PeterRange12. And uh, you can also go to visit OhioLife.org and ProtectWomenOhio.com. Peter, thank you for joining me today. Al, it's always a delight and joy to be with you. Thanks for having me on today. Let's, let's talk about the, the, the referendum itself. What, what does the bill actually say? Al, it's one of the most scariest things uh, I've ever read, and it's because of the groups that are behind it. You know, and it's not only Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, but a group called Urge, which on their own social media accounts believe that any parental involvement laws for abortion are unethical and must be abolished, therefore celebrating all abortions without exceptions, therefore decriminalizing self-managed abortion. So these are all the things that they say publicly. Um, So when we talk people and we walk people through the amendment, uh, we have to start with, well, who drafted it? And it's Mm. extreme groups that have drafted it. But in the amendment itself, it says that every individual has a right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including but not limited to abortion and a few other things. So they don't even use anywhere in the document woman or mother at all. And notice that they say reproductive decisions that are including but not limited to abortion. Again, if you go to these own websites of the ACLU and Planned Parenthood, they believe that involved in reproductive decisions includes transgender care as well. Now, when we talk about abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, it's, again, because of the language. Sure, they write in the amendment that abortion may be prohibited after fetal viability, but that's up to the treating physician if they believe it's necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life mm-hmm. or health. Now, that key term there, Al, is health, and Doe v. Bolton, the court defined health to include all factors 
physical, emotional, psychological, familial, the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the mother. So that would legalize abortion through all nine months here in Ohio. And then lastly, they've inserted this term burden, that the state can't burden, penalize, prohibit, interfere with, or discriminate against either an individual's voluntary exercise of this right or a person or entity that assists an individual exercising this right. So, you know, we have a 24-hour waiting period. That could be considered a burden. Right. Uh, we have local transfer agreements here that you have to be connected with a hospital to guarantee continuity of care. Well, that would be a, a burden to an activist judge here in Ohio. So this is the most dangerous, most extreme thing we face here in Ohio. And so whether you know one would even consider oneself pro-life or pro-choice, we're urging all Ohioans to vote no on issue one. This just goes way too far. Mm-hmm. So there's no clearly established cutoff for abortion, which leads into nine months. Um, there, you also have the risk of losing uh, protections that you already have, such as the waiting period. Uh, what, what are the polls saying right now? Well, Al, that's, you know, why I'm somewhat excited uh, right now, the day before the election. Look, we are being outspent uh, three to one in this election, and their money has come from outside the state of Ohio. $5.3 million came from the Progressive 1630 Fund. $3.5 million came from New York-based Open Society Policy Center. Uh, you may have remembered that. That's a lobbying group uh, that's associated with George Soros. Right. Two million came from the ACLU, one million from Michael Bloomberg from New York. So most of their money is flying in here from New York. But despite the fact they've been spending millions of dollars, again, outspending us three to one here in the state of Ohio, three months ago, our internal polling showed that they had a 55% yes vote. And then two months ago, it was 53%. And then a month ago, it was 51%. And our most recent polling here in the state of Ohio, Al, has them below 50%. Mm. Now, I'd rather be in their position because they're still ahead of us. But look, we've got them below 50%. We really have a chance to win here in the state of Ohio. If each one of your listeners, if you know anybody in Ohio or you're in Ohio yourself, you get to the polls, you drag 10 of your friends with you, we can make a difference and we can win this thing if we can just get our people to the polls to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're being heard on all the Annunciation radio stations uh, in the Toledo area. So that's very good. And we've got other stations uh, in Ohio that are listening to us right now, too. So... <clears throat> we should be able to generate some turnout uh, here. I, you know, this is what I think people are, are frustrated by is they take a look at what, um, you know, we're having to face these battles now after the great victory we had with Dobbs. And <clears throat> uh, we have just extraordinary money coming from out of state. So it isn't as though the citizens of Ohio— uh, are really uh, spearheading this. You've got vast amounts of money coming from, you mentioned the 1630 Fund, uh, ACLU, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Open Society. Uh, wh- I mean, they're going to turn around and say, well, what about you guys? Are you guys getting much money from out of state? Yeah, we've gotten support from Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, and we're so thankful for their pro-life witness and support here in the state of Ohio. They've actually knocked on 500,000 doors here in the state of Ohio for this campaign, so we're so incredibly thankful for their partnership. But look, the the intentions of Susan B. Anthony, they're pretty clear. They're they're a pro-life organization. These other dark money, Arabella Industries and groups that are donating (laughs) here, uh, you you just can't follow the money. You can't follow even where it comes from sometimes. Uh, Some of it's coming from a Swiss billionaire 
of all places as well. So, you know, the dark money that's being used to influence Ohioans is incredibly frustrating because what they've been doing now is they've just been lying on TV. They're telling women that they won't have access to miscarriage care or they won't have access to contraception here in Ohio. And then most recently, they're using this terrible tragedy uh, of a young girl, 10 years old, who had been uh, sexually assaulted here in the state of Ohio. And they're using that to justify 99% of abortions that take place here in our state. But not only that, this, the way that this amendment is, is written, their language explicitly protects any third parties who assist anyone in obtaining abortion, meaning that the 27-year-old illegal immigrant who's responsible for those crimes in this case could have taken his victim to get an abortion without her mother's knowledge mm. and continue on with his predatory behavior. So their amendment actually assists predators in trafficking these young girls because when they walk into Planned Parenthood, they'll just be one third party who's just assisting another individual in accessing their quote-unquote reproductive care. Yeah. So when they talk about protecting women or helping mothers or, or protecting little girls, their amendment is actually doing the complete opposite. It's aiding and betting those predators who want to hurt our young girls and our families. Now, am I right that uh, under current Ohio law, a minor needs parental consent to obtain an abortion? That is correct. That is current Ohio law. But under this amendment, since it says individual yeah. has an access to reproductive decisions, individual, that's a legal term. That means anyone of any age, but it also means anyone of any gender as well. So you could have a young boy who's thinking about reproductive decisions. Maybe he's struggling with gender dysphoria. Is he going to be able to walk into a Planned Parenthood who, oh, by the way, is becoming one of the leading providers of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones in the country? Is he now going to be able to walk into a clinic and just say, well, look, I'd like to transition my gender? You know, these are questions we don't know, and it's purposely left vague in this amendment. Um, so that's why we're frightened here in the state of Ohio about what's to come. Um, but we've seen, uh, you know, in Michigan, uh, where you're at, Al, as well, Governor Whitmer just introduced a whole slew of packages uh, that are attacking anything that has to do with pro-life. So this doesn't end with this amendment. That's why we have to stop it here. This will just continue unless we can uh, get the people of Ohio out to the polls to vote no on issue one. It's just so critical that you get out tomorrow and that you contact your family and friends and neighbors and say, you know, if you're not in Ohio but you're listening to the show today, uh, we could use your help. We will be flushing our voter rolls tomorrow, which just simply means, you know, we'll be able to see at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. who's voted. Mm. And then we're going to call all our conservative voters to make sure they get to the polls as well, because each off-year election here in the state of Ohio, you have roughly about 500,000 people who just don't vote. Uh, they only vote in presidential election right. cycles. Yeah, that's true. So I want to encourage people to go today to volunteer.createdequal.org. Say, say that again, Peter. Dot, say, say that yeah, again. Yeah, thank you so much. Volunteer.createdequal.org. So again, it's volunteer.createdequal.org. They're one of our partner uh, ministries here in the fight here in Ohio, and they're doing this election day, kind of flushing the voter rolls to make sure we get all our people to the polls to vote. And it's amazing when we talk to people on the streets, even my own neighbors out walking down the street, you know, whether it's taking my kids to the park or whatever it may be, and I ask them, have you heard about issue one? Uh, and then by the time we're done talking, they have a sign in their front yard because even those who identify as pro-choice or progressive, when they find out that this eliminates parental rights in the state, of Ohio that this would allow for painful late-term abortion. Even those who identify as progressive liberal, 60% of those said, well, we don't want that in our constitution. So we feel like we have a real pathway to victory here if we can just get our folks to the polls. Okay. 
Uh, Peter, let us uh, tell us again where people can get more information and where they can actually, if they need help getting to the polls. Do you have a way to help them? Yeah, thanks so much. So protectwomenohio.com, that's the main hub, the main website where people can find information, contact, they can send us a direct message if they need help getting to the polls, whatever it may be, protectwomenohio.com. And then if you want to help us, though, with our kind of voter flushing, calling people on voter on election day, that's volunteer.createdequal.org. Excellent. Peter, thanks. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again. Uh, after Thanks the uh, so election. Much. Please pray for us. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, again, Peter Range <clears throat> doing a great job uh, with Ohio Right to Life. And, <clears throat> you know, this is a, you know, the great victory of Dobbs' decision cleaned up the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, right? Uh, Roe v. Wade was highly, regard- was highly disregarded as a precedent. And so it was nice to get rid of it. But now it's back to the people, right? It's in the hands of the states, and it's up to us to do the job of communicating, just like Peter did with those neighbors of his that he happened to come across. He just asked them, "What did you, you know? Have you heard about this uh, issue one?" And it led to a conversation. And it led to them in fact putting up a sign. So it is important for us to be comfortable, to know, uh, you know, to know the issue, to be able to enter into conversation. And I, because I do think that most Americans don't think very deeply about abortion. I don't think they think very much about the moral status of the unborn child. Um, we know from polling that they don't like late-term abortions. They don't like paying for abortions. They don't like taxpayer funding for abortions. But they don't like to bother people either. And they think if abortion isn't there, it's going to create trouble for abortion-minded women. I don't like that. They have to, they have to be um, persuaded that the primary victim of abortion needs protection. We can help abortion-minded women who may have all sorts of needs. We see the work that uh, Guadalupe, worker, Guadalupe workers it goes about. But we can make a difference. We just have to keep the education going on. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know. But what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The arguments raging in today's society as to the state of marriage and who may enter into it shouldn't cause us to forget its permanent characteristics. According to the Catholic Catechism, the matrimonial covenant has two main purposes, the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. 
Our Lord Jesus raised this covenant to the dignity of a sacrament. The Catechism also reminds us of the indisputable fact that marriage is not a purely human institution. God himself is the author of marriage, and only God, not man, can change its common and permanent characteristics. It began with the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God who is love. Thus their mutual and unfailing love becomes an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves man. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession, and when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. This program brought to you by the following nonprofit company. From Affirm Films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. You are in danger, Mary. This child, what is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem, starring Fiona Palomo, Milo Mannheim, Lecrae, Joel Smallbone, and Antonio Banderas. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere, November 10th. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. The question has been raised, what do ordinary Palestinians actually think about Hamas? You know, it it doesn't follow that Palestinians necessarily share the same almost nihilistic approach to life that we see with Hamas. And what are they thinking, especially now, after October 7th? My guest, Joseph Browdy, is founder and president of the Center for Peace Communications. He studied Near Eastern languages at Yale and uh, Arabic and Islamic history at Princeton. He developed his Arabic uh, broadcast quality over a seven-year stint on Moroccan national radio, and he added Persian to his Arabic and Hebrew as a graduate student at the University of Tehran. He's the author of several books, most recently Reclamation, A Cultural Policy for Arab-Israeli Partnership, and 
You can follow his work at PeaceComs, C-O-M-M-S, PeaceComs.org. Joseph, good to make your acquaintance. Thanks. Thanks for having me on now. I came across uh, your, your website, and I was impressed with what I saw, and I thought I'd like to just talk with you about it. Tell me about the project um, you know, we, where you've, you're actually in, interviewing uh, Gazan citizens, uh, whispered in Gaza. Uh, you have actually, have you been talking to them since October 7th, too? Oh, yes. So the original series, Whispered in Gaza, came out earlier this year. Yeah. And after October 7th, we reactivated the same human network of Gazans and partnered with the Free Press uh, for a new series called Voices from Gaza, in which mm-hmm. they talk about the unfolding war. Um, so give people a little bit of background on how Hamas ended up being the governor of Gaza? Well, there were elections in 2006, but the way it took absolute control of Gaza was by a violent coup in 2007, where uh, it was quite bloody. Um, And since that time, they have repressed all forms of opposition to their rule. Uh, They have uh, ruled with a sort of a policy of corruption that features shakedowns of local merchants, uh, of course, violation of basic personal freedoms, especially of women, um, and meanwhile indoctrinated young people to their ideology. Mm. Okay. Um, so th- is there is no viable opposition to Hamas in, in Gaza? Well, there are some very brave people who have actually stood up and demonstrated against Hamas, a thousand young people in 2019, in a movement called We Want to Live, um, waged anti-Hamas street demonstrations. They were they braved gunfire in prison. Their families were punished collectively. And yet after all that, they re- there was a resurgence of the same protest movement in July of this year, uh, where they took to the streets again. So there is courage within Gaza and a desire to, uh, you know, um, live and and plan for a different future. Um, The problem is that the world wasn't listening uh, when they they, uh, spoke out. So we wanted to do something about that. And these projects um, that we've waged, both Whispered in Gaza and Voices from Gaza, are sort of an innovative way to get those voices heard in many languages and in, in different countries around the world. Give me give me uh, some profiles here of people you've talked to and what they say. Well, um, you know, starting with I mentioned women's issues, a um, a dancer of the Debka, which is uh, the traditional Palestinian dance form, who after that violent takeover by Hamas in two thousand seven, started getting threats that she had to stop dancing and end her career as a dancer. And when she refused, they threatened to throw her brothers in prison. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that her uh, story embodies a kind of a common trend that we also see in Iran, uh, where the same ideology, in effect, is uh, repressing women throughout the country. But now people are starting to stand against it. 
Um, you know, some of the most compelling testimony is from people who are explaining their predicament. There's a young woman who says, we're forbidden to say we don't want war. Um, she explains that whereas on the one hand, lots of media controlled by Turkey, Qatar, and Iran are promulgating the Hamas message and the false uh, depiction of Gazans as standing united in solidarity with Hamas, those many who don't want war, uh, who don't want uh, cascading tragedy, uh, aren't allowed to even open their mouths. And if they do, they're branded a traitor oh. or a spy and thrown in prison. And so you have this false picture of uh, what's going on in Gaza that is being uh, uh, that is the direct result of the forced ideological conformity of Hamas. Is are the dissenting voices uh, cross generational, or are they rooted largely in the young or the old, or are they cross generations? I think that they trend. It, it is certainly. Um, exists within the young generation, the generation that didn't have a chance to vote in 2006 because they either weren't born or weren't of voting age, and that's the majority of the of the territory. Uh, but it's older people as well, Al. I mean, guest workers uh, in, who, in Israel who uh, had the opportunity in recent years to uh, work in Israel and uh, uh, bring back an income um, and we're hoping that that guest worker program would continue and expand. Um, these are people in their 50s, 40s and 50s, uh, who are devastated that Hamas started this war uh, because it shut it all down. Yeah. And uh, as, as in the case of the four wars that preceded it, you have the same trend. Uh, Hamas launches an attack, of course, all, first of all, paled by comparison to the atrocities that it perpetrated on October 7th, provokes an inevitable and understandable response, and then uh, hides in bunkers while civilians suffer the casualties. So you yeah. don't have to be young or old uh, or male or female to understand the tragedy there, especially with people looking at these leaderships who are living in opulence in Qatar and Turkey, uh, while their people suffer. Do people understand that Hamas doesn't intend to um, live side by side with Israel, that they exist, Hamas exists to obliterate Israel, as I understand it. Both charters indicate that. Do, do the Palestinian people in Gaza understand that uh, Hamas has no intention of peaceful coexistence. Of course they understand that. And, and the area where there's, you know, been common ground with the kind of people that I'm uh, describing is in as much as Hamas in recent years appeared to be uh, honoring a truce with Israel, mm -hmm. at least with respect to the rocket attacks from inside Gaza, uh, people were supportive of that. But it's important to take, take a step back and not um, uh, paint a false picture of the large segment of Gazans I'm describing who are against Hamas. I don't mean necessarily suggest that these are pro-Israel people. Uh, there is 
a uh, an element among them that genuinely believes in coexistence as the way forward. Uh, there's a larger number who think about it pragmatically. They want to rebuild their territory. They want continuity. They want a chance for a better life. And whatever their many reservations about Israel, uh, they don't believe that the path of war is a prudent one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not simply a, a matter of um, hawks versus doves, if you will, or annihilationists versus uh, people for coexistence. Mm-hmm. It's that people of all different views about Israel are able to come together on the idea that what Hamas has been doing is self-destructive. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, I- Israelis are, you know, victims, tragically victims in large numbers of Hamas atrocities. But uh, meanwhile, in Gaza, people are daily victims of Hamas because they live under its absolute tyranny. Yeah, yeah. Um, are, do you share the common view that Hamas is embedding their military assets in um, civilian you know, hospitals, uh, businesses, uh, residential dwellings. Is that a standard practice for Hamas? Well, for, it's, for us, it's not merely a view. In the Voices of Gaza uh, series that's, you know, airing on the free press online, we actually have testimony uh, that we're putting out of Gazans who are describing, uh, number one, that uh, how Hamas forcibly forcibly prevents Gazans from evacuating the war uh, the, the war zone areas. Um, they describe how a Hamas you know member visiting a family member inevitably triggers uh, an Israeli effort to target him that harms others, and how people in the same neighborhood are organizing to barricade their narrow streets with sheet metal in order to prevent Hamas people from coming in. Mm. They know that those are the people who are being targeted. They understand that they as civilians are not being targeted, and they're trying to do what they can to keep these people away for their own protection. Yeah, yeah. Um, Does Hamas, in your estimation... Does Hamas have a round two for this after October 7th? What do they expect to happen? I think that Hamas uh, hopes that some um, combination of um, international pressure uh, and uh, pressure from allies of Israel will lead to a ceasefire Mm -hmm. that amounts to a deal to keep Hamas in power. Yeah. Because that was the outcome of the last four confrontations between Israel and Hamas. And that's what they want. Joseph, uh, music's coming up. We're out of time. But thank you so much. And uh, I'll continue to watch what you're doing. I hope we can talk again in the future. It's very helpful. My pleasure. Joseph Browdy is founder and president of the Center for Peace Communications. I'm Al Cresto. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. 
Kiro's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfkiro.com to learn more. That's cmfkiro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Sixty on ten with Monsignor Charles Pope. The seventh commandment: You shall not steal. The seventh commandment forbids theft. That is unjustly taking or keeping another's property against the reasonable will of the owner. It also prohibits deliberate retention of goods lent or of objects lost. It prohibits business fraud, paying unjust wages, forcing up prices, and taking advantage of the ignorance or the hardship of another person. It prohibits the appropriation and use for private purposes of common goods. Also, work poorly done, tax evasion, forgery of checks, invoices, excessive expenses, and waste. Under the Seventh Commandment is also tucked our social justice teachings, because if I have two coats, one of them belongs to the poor, and I reasonably ought to give what belongs to them, because God gave all the goods of this world for all the people of this world. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. The American Medical Association says informed consent to medical treatment is a fundamental right established in both medical ethics and U.S. law. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. When speaking with a patient regarding different procedures and care options, a physician must give accurate information about the diagnosis, treatment, benefits, and risk, and allow the patient to ask questions. Ensure the patient understands the consequences of the treatment alternatives and decide if the patient is capable of making decisions with a sound mind. Document the informed consent conversation and the patient's or their healthcare agent's treatment decision. It is vital to have a healthcare agent who is aware of all your wishes, values, and medical information so that your wishes are respected in the event you are not able to make these decisions at some point. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com.
I'm out, Cresta. Those whose lives are guided by Scripture uh, are supposed to prize remembering, memory. Catholics know that the Eucharist is a special type of remembering, right? Do this in memory of me. The command to remember is a common refrain throughout the Old Testament. Israel is told to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt, and now they must practice justice and hospitality to the weak and the stranger. Why? Well, remember, you were once weak and a stranger. You know, so this is a vital part of being a biblical people. Now, in our own generation, we've watched a new type of cultural amnesia develop in spite of easy access to the past through Internet searches. People seem to value the past less and less. And, of course, that's coupled with the problem that many in our society have the attention span of a goldfish. The further America drifts, or the farther America drifts, from some of the biblical principles that mark our history, it seems the farther people get from prizing memory. And it's not just a problem for spirituality. You know, it's not just for personal piety. It's a problem for a free society if you don't remember the past. This has really been impressed upon me recently when I've been watching uh, protesters uh, attending the most prestigious universities in America. I see them chanting uh, phrases that are really echoing clear falsehoods and operating under deception. And, of course, they're also gathering and mobilizing in cities, calling on Israel to free Gaza. Well, did they forget that Gaza was self-governing? I mean, last month, pro-Palestinian sympathizers congregated uh, around the Cannon House office building to hear Representative Rashid uh, Tlaib of Michigan again blame Israel for a hospital blast, even though subsequent evidence showed that that blast was likely committed by a misfired rocket from Gaza. You know, Israel, like every nation state, has its own citizens who can be critical of Israel for various policies, right? I mean, in America, we know full well what it's like to love America, <clears throat> but also to be critical of various policies. That's true in Israel as well. So I'm not against, you know, holding Israel accountable. But there are some complaints coming from the progressive left right now that are frankly just simply false. You'll hear shouting about Israel as an apartheid state or a product of colonialism or a a Goliath to the Palestinian. Israel is a Goliath to the Palestinian David. They say such things because they actually have no clue as to history. You'll hear them say, for instance, that in 1948, the state of Israel broke up and displaced a Palestinian nation. But there never was a Palestinian nation. The United Nations, after a thorough investigation of the history of the land, recognized the Jews as the only one with indigenous rights to the land. Now, you can disagree with the UN's judgment about that, but in the absence of counter-evidence, Wise people will stay with the U.N. judgment. Uh, The Jewish people are indigenous to the land. Nobody else, not the Palestinians, not any other Arab group, ever formed a state in Israel. The land had been occupied over the centuries by all kinds of people, Assyrians, uh, Babylonians, Persians, 
Romans, the Byzantines, the Crusaders, the Holy Roman Empire. <clears throat> and then you had the conquering Muslim empires, such as the Umayyads, the uh, Abbasids, the Fatimids, the Ottomans. And then after World War I, you had the British. So yes, Arab groups have lived on the land that we call Israel, but they never formed a political entity. If you ask them to identify themselves, they probably would have started by naming their family or their clan. Then they would describe their means of making a living. And they would also mention the religion, which for the most part were Muslim. They would not say, I'm a member of the Palestinian nation. The idea of a Palestinian state was actually approved by Israel and the United Nations in 1947-48. And then the Arabs turned it down. And the next day, and, and the territory, by the way, I think it was roughly 56, 44 percent. Uh, Israel uh, was a little stronger than Palestinians there. The Arabs turned it down, and the next day, five Arab nations declared war on Israel before the ink has, had dried on their own declaration of independence, so to speak. The state of Israel did not displace the state of Palestine. There was no state of Palestine. You'll hear them say that Israel is an apartheid nation. Now, South Africa was an apartheid nation. That is a nation that segregates the races by law. Uh, in South Africa, they had laws against mixed racial marriages. They had separate legislators for blacks and whites. They had ID requirements, uh, which had identified you by race. Israel has none of this. In fact, up to 25%, between 20 and 25% of Israeli citizens aren't Jewish at all. And they've got equal rights. They serve in the Knesset, the legislature. They serve on the Supreme Court. So the claim that Israel practices apartheid, separation of the races, is just ludicrous on its face. But sure enough, you hear it on campuses. You, you'll hear them say that Gaza was an open-air prison uh, and that Hamas' attack was like a prison escape. Well, that's nonsense. I'm not saying that life in uh, Gaza was pleasant. Uh, I think you had a, a tighter population there, population density, just terrible. So I'm not saying it was pleasant. But in a fine essay at the Law and Liberty website, Rachel Lamaski points out that Israeli companies were opening factories in Gaza. Countless nonprofits were fostering forums for Israel's and Palestinians to talk. Workers from Gaza brought back $2 million a day to their economy. So whatever Gaza was, it wasn't an open-air prison. You'll hear them say that Israel has no respect for Palestinian lives, but just look at the rising number of noncombatants, right? All those children dying. This is terrible. This is tragic. You would hope there's a better way to do this. But... Israel is attacking Hamas, not the Palestinians. You've got the fog of war here. The reason for the rise in civilian casualties is that Hamas embeds its military assets in civilian settings like schools and businesses and hospitals, just as we heard in the last segment. And what's abundantly clear is that Hamas doesn't prize Palestinian lives. By using their fellow Palestinians as human shields, they're practicing a form of human sacrifice of the very people that they were charged with protecting. I mean, it's Hamas that put up roadblocks to keep Palestinians from fleeing Gaza down south. 
Israel's the one issuing the warnings to leave and move south. You'll hear them say that Israel rejects the idea of a Palestinian nation. Again, amnesia. At least three times the Palestinians have been offered a nation. Each time, Palestinian leadership has rejected it. Read the Hamas charters of 1988 and the revision of 2017. Hamas has it in black and white, quote, initiatives and so-called peaceful solutions are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. There is no solution for this Palestinian question except through jihad. Quoting Rachel Lamaski again here, Hamas, quote, is the same organization that sent suicide bombers when Israel tried to implement the Oslo Peace Accords and whose founding document calls for the killing of all the Jews, not limited just to those in, Pal- in Israel. You know, it's Israel actually showing more principled concern for Palestinian lives than Hamas. You'll hear them say that Israel, because of its military and intelligence services, is very secure. They don't need to be so concerned. Well, really, October 7th? That demonstrates that even with its military and intelligence services, Israel is still vulnerable to terrorist attacks. And for decades, Israel has tolerated suicide bombers, regular rocket attacks against her sovereignty. Just think for a minute what we would do in the United States if Mexico regularly lobbed missiles across the Rio Grande into Texas. That's what Israel's been putting up with for decades now. You'll hear them say that the Palestinian people just want to live in peace. Well, I'm sure there's a sizable number of Palestinians who want a peaceful solution. Unfortunately, they always seem to end up with conniving, corrupt, unprincipled leadership. The undeniable truth is that Hamas and some other Muslim-dominated nation-states cannot accept Israel's right to existence because it violates the teaching of Islam. Any land once conquered by Muslims becomes permanently Muslim land. So when you hear these college protesters shouting from the river to the sea, they're saying they want to push Israel from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Hamas, as mentioned earlier, does not want to live side by side with Israel. That's according to their own charter documents. The only solution acceptable is the obliteration of Israel. And this is what's obvious in both charters. You know, we're all ignorant, but about different things. And these college students are clearly ignorant. But again, as Rachel Lamaski points out in this excellent piece at Law and Liberty website, there's no crime in not being familiar with the nuances of this conflict. All right? It, it, it can be complicated. Hamas isn't complicated, but the overall problem can be complicated. So there's no crime in not being familiar with nuances of the conflict. But if someone's using their voice to support the side that is kidnapping, raping, and murdering, they'd better be darn sure they've done the research. Supporting Hamas because you support the Palestinians is like supporting the Taliban because you support the Afghanis. You know, you don't, the two are not to be identified. There are some advantages to aging. Um, You do remember things that younger people never experienced. And even a weathered old Bernie Sanders, a darling of the political left in America, 
has been watching this conflict for decades, and he could teach these student protesters a lesson. Last night, he told his progressive followers that Hamas has got to go. Quote, I don't know how you can have a permanent ceasefire with an organization like Hamas, which is dedicated to turmoil and chaos in destroying the state of Israel. Some percentage of Palestinians do want a two-state solution, but not Hamas. Hamas doesn't want a Palestinian state. It wants the destruction of Israel. Just ask yourself, how do you negotiate with a neighbor who will only be satisfied with your obliteration? An Israeli scholar put it this way the other day on the program here. They ask us Israelis, why is there an Arab-Israeli conflict? And I say there isn't really a conflict. They want to kill us, and we refuse to die. When it comes to dealing with Hamas, it really is that simple. And it is stunning to me that we have, again, voices here in the United States which have access to all the necessary documents. They have access to documentary after documentary. And yet, they don't understand what Hamas's intention is. Now, we'll see what happens. <clears throat> Many Arab nations, or more, <coughs> more Arab nations <coughs> have come to accept Israel's right to existence. But it won't be Hamas uh, that will last. These other nations, like Egypt, may help. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you.
Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Congratulations going out to another longtime member of our EWTN radio family, Real Presence Radio, celebrating 19 years with EWTN. I want to say congratulations to the great team there at Real Presence. They're, they're now heard on 27 stations in North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Wyoming. So congrats from all your friends here at EWTN. I can't stress enough the importance of supporting your local Catholic stations. Without those local Catholic stations, there's no um, platform for what we're doing day in and day out with the programs that we produce. So support your local Catholic radio station. All right, let me tell you what's coming up in the next hour. We're going to be joined by um, Dr. Holly Ordway, who has been with us before. She had a wonderful uh, testimony story she shared with us. Um, but today I've asked her to come on because she has just produced what 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 is going to be the definitive study of J.R.R. Tolkien's faith. It's simply called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography, 500 pages. Uh, she has a great eye for detail. It's been 50 years since Tolkien died. He died in 1973. And since then, The Lord of the Rings has been translated into dozens of languages. It's film adaptation, one of the most successful film series of all time. Many people still don't realize that Tolkien was a man of deep Catholic faith. And for some reason, various biographers have seemed reluctant to explore that area of his life. They're going to have to explore it with Holly's book available now. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks once again for joining me. I'm Al Cresta. And this hour, we're going to take a look, a deep look, at the generous, magnanimous, um, deeply meaningful faith of J.R.R. Tolkien. My guest, Dr. Holly Ordway, has just published uh, Tolkien. The book is called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. It is a magisterial volume, over 500 pages, I think it's 500 pages. And it will, I think, clear up, actually it will draw people's attention to how deep uh, Tolkien's faith was. In fact, you know, <laughs> when he was asked... Tolkien actually wrote that, quote, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. But I think what's funny is, of course, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Well, we're going to find out just how is that true, and we'll also talk about why it's been so universally loved, um, it's amazing, the its popularity, and you know it it was a magnificent um, work by Tolkien, which kind of opened up the whole fantasy uh, writing area. Um, when he published Lord of the Rings, people didn't know quite what to make of it. It wasn't children's literature. It wasn't uh, you know like a, a young adult novel. Uh, what was it? 
Well, it's been uh, incredibly influential. We're going to talk about it with uh, Holly coming up in just a few minutes here. But first, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Monday, November 6th, it's the Feast of St. Leonard of No Black. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes. CharityMobile.com. Pope Francis says wars in the Middle East and Ukraine are killing the future of children. In his Angelus Prayer Sunday, the Pope again appealed for a ceasefire by Israeli forces in Gaza and for Hamas to release the 200 Israelis it's holding hostage. In his prayer, Francis asked the faithful to think about all the children involved in the war in Israel and Gaza, as well as Ukraine and what he called other conflicts. Nearly four dozen U.S. service members may have been injured in recent attacks in Iraq and Syria. NBC News reporting that's more than twice as many as the Pentagon had previously disclosed. Bases housing U.S. personnel have been attacked dozens of times since October, following the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. Former President Trump's testimony in his New York civil fraud trial is wrapped up. New York Governor Kathy Hochul assessing today's court appearance. Far from telling the truth, as he's required to do, He's throwing temper tantrums from the witness stand and verbally attacking judges and courtroom staff. His conduct has been a disgrace. The Democratic governor says she's fully confident Trump will be held accountable for his actions. Some customers still haven't been paid due to bank deposit delays caused by a human error last week. Lisa Taylor has more. Banks emphasize to their customers that their funds are secure, according to CNN. A statement from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau says the agency is aware of the issue and monitoring how institutions are responding. Payments that didn't go through needed to be resent, which can take extra time. And the death penalty is seeking its lowest support in five decades. That according to a new Gallup survey, which shows 50% said it was given out unfairly. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The Lord of the Rings is a worldwide bestseller. It's been translated into more than 50 languages, from Arabic and Chinese to Thai and Turkish. The film adaptations are loved by millions who have never read the book. Amazon's The Rings of Power uh, was the most expensive television series ever made, with a second season in the works. And yet, the contrast between author and audience is stark. Tolkien was a devout Catholic of a traditionalist mindset, he prayed to God in Latin, had a devotion to the Blessed Mother, called the Eucharist the one great thing to love on earth, and yet most of his readership has no belief in or even basic knowledge of these things. Hopefully that's changing with the publication of Holly Ordway's Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Holly is a fellow of faith and culture at the Word on Fire Institute, and visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. She holds a doctorate in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. Her other books include Tolkien's Modern Reading, uh, Middle Earth, Beyond the Middle Ages, which received the 2022 Mythopoeic Scholarship Award in Inkling Studies, and her uh, memoir called Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. You can follow her on Twitter, at Holly Ordway, H-O-L-L-Y-O-R-D-W-A-Y. Holly, good to have you back here. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
what a great piece of work. Did you love it? Did you love it? Did you love the work? Yes, it was utterly exhausting and occupied every ounce of my energy, and I loved every minute of doing it. (laughs) Uh, I loved every minute I spent reading through it, and I tell you, this is probably going to, I would hope this is going to change uh, attitudes. I, I, you know, going back to, I read the Humphrey Carpenter biography a long time ago, and I was surprised that he didn't say as much uh, as I thought was important about Tolkien's faith. But why, why is that? Why have biographers generally missed it? Well, I think partly it's because his first biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, simply didn't understand his faith at all. Carpenter himself, when he wrote the uh, the biography, <clears throat> was uh, not a believer. Um, he came from an Anglican family. In fact, his, his father was the um, Anglican Bishop of Oxford. Oh. And he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about religion in general, about Oxford in general, um, and he was an atheist when he was working on um, this book. And so he, I think in his, in his own way, he tries to be fair to Tolkien. He acknowledges that Tolkien has a strong Catholic faith, but he absolutely doesn't understand it, and he's not terribly interested. And so he just sort of mentions it and, and moves on as if it's just a purely private and personal thing. Mm-hmm. And other scholars have, have more or less just picked up on this. Um, and quite shockingly, there's even um, a major biographer, Raymond Edwards, who literally relegates all discussion of Tolkien's faith to an appendix. <laughs> talk, about, <laughs> talk about compartmentalizing the faith, right? Wow, wow. And that's exactly the opposite of Tolkien's actual experience. He was anything but compartmentalized, and that's been, but that's been the, the assumption. And also, people have just not known enough about his cultural context. What was it like to be an English Catholic yep. in the early 20th century? Yeah. And, and so it's been, it's been all too easy to just kind of brush past it. Oh, yeah, he was a Catholic, or he was a Christian fine, that's nice, move on, yeah. when in fact, it was really fundamental to his identity. Well, let's go back to his family of origin. Uh, you write that on his father's side, most of the Tolkien's were Baptists. Um, he was, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was baptized in the Anglican Church, I believe? Yes. Yeah. His mother's side had Methodists, the Unitarians. Um, how did his parents, though, became pretty convicted Anglicans, didn't they? Yes, um, we don't know a lot about you know their early you know faith formation, but we do know that they were married in the Anglican Church um, in South Africa, where um, his father had taken a job, and in fact Mabel was baptized in the Anglican Church because evidently her father being Unitarian, she had never been baptized in the Triune mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. and so we can see early on with Mabel's adult baptism and with the couple's involvement. Um, in the Anglican Church in Bloemfontein, that they were serious about their faith. Um, they had made a faith commitment to the Anglican Church, as happened, and baptized, you know, their you know their son who was born. Um, and it's in that context of taking the faith seriously that we see then Mabel, a few years later, as now having lost her husband, you know, she's now a widow, um, and she becomes drawn to the Catholic Church. Probably through the Oxford movement um, is what I, I worked out in my in my research. Yeah, you know, the influence but, of Newman, the Oxford movement. Um, but she's taking wi- faith very seriously. She's a widow. I mean, she, yeah. So she's already marginalized a bit. I mean, becoming Catholic marginalizes her even further, right? 
Yes, and we can see why Tolkien had such a great admiration for his mother's strength of faith. And he, he calls her a martyr to the faith. And that's more understandable, indeed, when you see this context, because she was very vulnerable as, as a widow. She was dependent on her, her extended family, you know, helping her out financially. To become a Catholic was to make a very downward social move. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was to be very much, you know, socially ostracized, socially disadvantaged. And her family is appalled, and they cut off financial support to try to pressure her to come back into the faith. And so, therefore, <clears throat> therefore, she's, you know, having to deal with poverty and strain with her family. And it would have been so easy for her to say, well, okay, I'll come back to right. the Anakin faith, or, you know, to make some sort of compromise. But she holds firm at great personal cost. And this, I think, is what Tolkien really notices, even as a boy, that she had become convinced that you know, that the Catholic Church was the one church, she entered into it, and she stayed. And she also tried to preserve good relations. She still continued to write to, you know, her family, to communicate with them. So she really tried to live out this sort of conciliatory role without giving up her faith. She's an amazing woman. After her death, what becomes of her children? Well, they're now orphans, completely. Um, So Tolkien, at age 12, had lost both of his parents. And Mabel had entrusted Tolkien and his little brother Hilary to the guardianship of Father Francis Morgan, who is a priest of the Birmingham Oratory. And he becomes their guardian. And more than a guardian, he really becomes what Tolkien later called a second father. Mm -hmm. He he loves the boys. He looks after them. he, He spends out of his personal funds to help educate them and and look after them. And he also brings them into a larger community at the Birmingham Oratory. It's not just Father Francis. There's a whole community of 15 or 20 fathers who become mentors, you know, kind of older brothers and father figures hmm. that Tolkien is able to learn from. So he becomes, so Tolkien becomes part of that, I mean, community in the, in the broader sense. He's... Yes, and in fact, he he says he became almost a junior inmate of the Oratory House. (laughs) And here's a really interesting thing, that he becomes involved, he becomes, you know, this this sort of junior member, adopted in a sense by the the Oratory and Fathers, at the absolute lowest point of his life. He's an orphan, he's poor, he's he's lost everything. But he, looking back, he describes the Oratory as a home in excelsis, a home in the highest. Wow. He has nothing but praise for it. Oh. Uh, Was he spiritually precocious, or or was he full of adolescent pranks? (laughs) Oh, he was definitely full of pranks. Okay. Um, You know, he was was very much a a boy, um, and he had very high spirits. There's there's one story of him um, taking a cat and putting it in the uh, the oratory's um, kitchen serving um, (laughs) lift. So, you know, one of the the fathers went to get his breakfast, and there's a very annoyed cat waiting for him. Oh gosh! But uh, the actually the, the oratory spirituality has a very great emphasis on humor and fun as a part of spirituality. Yeah. So it was really an, an encouraging aspect of Tolkien's personality. Yeah. Did he did he have <clears throat> um, kids his own age that he was able to relate to there? Um, in the oratory itself, they had a little brothers of the oratory. Um, so for boys of. Uh, well, of Tolkien's age, and we don't know if he was involved directly with that. 
I think he, he may have been. We don't we don't know for sure. But he was involved with the Oratory's Boy Scout troop. Um, in fact, he mm-hmm. and his brother Hillary were Boy Scout leaders. And this was actually sponsored by the Oratory to, you know, for the, the Catholic children of the neighborhood. And so he definitely had um, socialization with Catholic boys his own age, which was an important balance because he was at this point attending King Edward School, which was actually a Protestant day school. Mm. Kind of an unusual move for a Catholic boy at this era, um, because Catholic parents in general were very, very hesitant to allow their children to be educated in Protestant schools because the environment was so anti-Catholic that there was a danger that the, you know, the children would you know, be drawn away from their parents' faith. But Tolkien was very academically precocious, and that was the best place for him to be educated. Mm-hmm. And Mabel, while she was still alive, had discerned, almost certainly with the help of Father Francis and with you know, other oratory fathers, one of whom was the headmaster of an oratory school, they would send Tolkien there, but he would also, he'd be receiving his spiritual formation at the oratory. Mm-hmm. He was an altar server, he served Mass every day. So there's definitely a sense that they're going to be forming him and catechizing him. And Tolkien later said that he felt that this was really important and allowed him later to move and work in a non-Catholic professional environment. Because he had learned to be strongly rooted in his faith and not be afraid of his Protestant, you know, his Protestant classmates. Yeah, yeah. Did I'm just curious, is any record of him having considered priesthood? There's no record of that. Um, So, I mean, absence is not evidence, but I think it's unlikely that he ever did, because he fell in love quite early. um, Oh, yes. As a teenager. Yes. I think he discerned his vocation to marriage pretty quickly. (laughs) Yes, let's talk about that. That itself is a remarkable story. Um, He he meets uh, Edith. What is her relationship to the oratory? Well, she doesn't have a specific relationship to the oratory, except that she was also an orphan. Um, she was a Protestant, um, and she happened to be um, lodging um, at the same boarding house run by a Catholic family who were parishioners of the Oratory. So that's her sort of okay. remote connection. Okay. And it's at that same lodging house that Father Francis has um, Tolkien and his brother. And so they meet when, you know, they're still teenagers, and they become first um, fast friends, um, and then and then Tolkien falls in love with, with Edith, who was, you know, beautiful and vivacious and intelligent and clever and spirited, and he just loses his heart to this, this uh, young woman. Yeah. And she to him. And Father Francis doesn't like it. He doesn't. And this is interesting because, you know, it can very easily seem like, oh, here's Father Francis, the interfering priest, because ultimately he separates them and he says, Tolkien, you must not see or write to Edith until you come of age. And Tolkien actually obeys. How? how that's three years? Three years. Three years. Hold, hold it there, Holly. We'll come back. We'll pick up the conversation there because you're right. That is, when I read that, I just thought, wow, how I don't quite understand that. Um, but uh, we'll talk about it on the other side of the break. My guest, Dr. Holly Ordway, <clears throat> Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography. Why does the Catholic Church value virginity? At the heart and center of all Christian life is Christ the Lord. 
The Catechism tells us that our bond with Christ takes precedence over all bonds, familial or social. From the church's very beginning, there have been men and women who have forsaken marriage to follow the Lamb wherever he leads them. Christ himself has invited certain persons to follow him in this way of life for which he remains the model. Virginity for the sake of the kingdom is an unfolding of baptismal grace, a powerful sign of the supremacy of a person's bond with Christ. It is also a sign that this bond recalls that marriage is a reality of this present age which is passing away. St. John Christendom puts it well, The most excellent good is something even better than what is admitted to be good. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Father Benedict Groeschel. I don't think people should have negative fears of God. But I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have, and we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence, and in proportion as we believe that He is present, we shall have them, and not to have them is not to realize, not to believe that God is present to us. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, Teach Me to Pray, the free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. This program brought to you by the following nonprofit company. From a firm films comes Journey to Bethlehem. This wasn't a dream. An angel came to me. Can we? Can we? Look at the star. This is it. You truly believe that this child is the chosen one. What is his name? Jesus. Journey to Bethlehem. Rated PG. Federal guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere, November 10th. Soundtrack also available. More information is at journeytobethlehem.com. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Holly Ordway. Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Uh, before the break, we are talking about uh, Tolkien falling in love with Edith. I think she's two years older than he is. And um, um, his uh, guardian, uh, Father Francis, decides uh, this doesn't, he doesn't think it's a good idea, apparently. And actually basically orders Tolkien not to see her for three years or write to her. That was even stranger. So I don't get that. So help me understand it. Well, I dug into this because I think this is, this is in a way very mysterious because he, he loves Father Francis. Father yeah. Francis is looking after him. So what's going on? And what it comes down to is that this relationship is disrupting young Tolkien's life. Um, so one of the one of the problems is that he's neglecting to prepare for his scholarship examinations at Oxford, um, and in fact he fails the first time that he that he uh, applies. Mm. And this is really vitally important for his future because you know we take it for granted that he goes to Oxford, he becomes a professor, but he didn't have any money, and his you know his finances were very straightened. Even with Father Francis paying some of the fees out of pocket, which he did, he had to get a scholarship if he was going to go to university. And that was really the best way for his very obvious talents to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So Father Francis is really trying to look after his ward, like his long-term interests. Like, no, you need to not be distracted by your girlfriend. Um, <laughs> now, that wasn't, I think, the main thing, though, because T- Tolkien admitted himself that he was likely to get, you know, just distracted by learning Gothic or <laughs> some other <laughs> hobby. But is that when they started to meet, you know, first they're, you know, they're, they have you know, just conversations. Then they start meeting together, you know, going for long walks. It's all, it's all innocent in what they're doing, but Tolkien lies about it. Oh. He lies deliberately. Um, he says, oh, I'm just going to go here by myself. And in reality, he went somewhere else with Edith. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what set off the red flags for Father Francis. Yeah. Why is he, why is he lying about what, there's no reason for him to lie about this because, you know, he, he could see this girl. And the fact that she was Protestant didn't mean they couldn't get married. Um, in fact, as I discerned in my research, she didn't even have to become a Catholic for them to get married. He would have been able to get a dispensation relatively easily. Mm-hmm. She did, in fact, eventually become Catholic, and they married. But she, you know, it wasn't an obstacle, but it was something that he would have had to talk to his guardian about if he was serious about it. Yeah. And he's not doing that. So I think Father Francis just maybe panics a little bit mm-hmm. and says, okay, I'm putting the brakes on this. Yeah. He doesn't like that it's leading Tolkien into a habit of dishonesty, yeah. of deliberate dishonesty. Now, here's the really interesting thing. When Tolkien, they, he forbids them to see each other, they end up moving to different lodgings, okay. But when Tolkien goes to Oxford um, a year later, he could easily have written to Edith without his guardian knowing. He could have deceived his guardian but he chooses to obey him. Wow. And that really moves me. Me because too. Because he loves, he loves his guardian, and he knew, as painful as it was, he knew that Father Francis was doing this out of, of love and care for him. And he says it was very painful and difficult, and it did strain his relationship with his guardian, but it didn't break it. And later, Tolkien even says in a letter to one of his sons that he in later years reflected that it was only the separation that allowed a kind of boyish crush to mature into real love. Wow, that's great. That's great. 
Um, I love he, the last letter he writes to her before uh, the three-year fast, so to speak. He also includes two books for her. Um, uh, I think it's the Stations of the Cross book. Yes. And was the, was the other one a rosary? I can't remember what the second one was. Um, it's um, Stations of the Cross and Seven Words from That's the Cross. That's right, Seven Words from um, the, the Cross. So the two Lenten booklets. That's right. And so I think, yeah, it's interesting. This is not, not what you would imagine you would send to your sweetheart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's an indication that he's, even at that young age as a teenager, he's, he's taking his faith seriously and he knows that whatever relationship he may have with Edith in the future, their faith is going to be part of it. Their shared Christian faith and his Catholic faith is going to be an important part of it. Yeah. So why not start now? Let's talk uh, about being Catholic in England at the time. Um, it, it, it certainly is much different than it is today. Um, what were the barriers uh, to full participation well, I mean, socially, Catholics were very much marginalized from centuries of, of disenfranchisement. After, you know, after the Reformation in England, there were extremely strict penal laws imposed, you know, death to harbor priests, <laughs> death to be a priest. And these were eased off, you know, in, in the centuries that follow. But even by the 1800s, the middle 1800s, Catholics still did not have full civil rights. Um, it wasn't until the early 1800s that they, they got the right to vote back. It wasn't until 1850 that Oxford University allowed them to become students in Oxford. Um, so there's a lot of barriers that were, were only slowly coming down and a lot of anti-Catholic prejudice. Every mm -hmm. time there was a relief bill in Parliament, there were literally riots in the street. No popery, down with the Pope, you know, Pope. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is the environment in which Tolkien's growing up, and I think it's important to recognize that his faith was not just a, you know, fait accompli. Okay, sure, his mother had become a Catholic, and therefore his, the boys were instructed in the faith, but it would have made his life a lot easier as a teenager, as a young man at Oxford, if he had, you know— he could have said, I'm going back to the Anglican faith of my father. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both sides of the extended family were Protestant. They would have been thrilled. Yeah. So there's a real intentionality about Tolkien remaining a Catholic, because he had a lot of pressure. To, his life would have been easier, you know, if, if he had gone back to Anglicanism, but he didn't. Yeah. Well, let, let's jump forward a bit here. Uh, they get married, and uh, three months I think it's three months after they're married, he's called to war. Yes, the Great War, yeah. um, absolute cataclysm. Um, and in and Tolkien later noted that almost all of his close friends were killed yeah. in the war. It's just absolute devastating trauma. And you know he made it through, but he 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 was um, evacuated out of the trenches because he had severe trench fever um, and. That at the time was, you know, new disease, didn't know what it was, didn't have any effective way to treat it. If it became chronic, as it did in Tolkien's case, it was lifelong. Mm. So he was, he was affected by this. And he, he lost 30 pounds of weight at one point, and he was not a heavy set guy to begin with. Wow. He was, quite, 100% disabled. So quite a lot of suffering in the hospital, even apart from 
his suffering and you know, seeing the horrors of the trenches. So, and yet he he keeps his faith. Yeah. All of this. Uh, and how does he do that? I mean, does he have ways of disciplining his uh, mind and heart? Uh, I, I mean, people say there's no atheist in a foxhole. I don't believe that. Uh, I think there are but lots there are of atheists in foxholes. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of his a lot of his Anglican you know compatriots lost their faith yeah. um, when they went to war, and his friends his future friend C.S. Lewis started the war as an atheist and was still an atheist when he came out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the one of the things I think we can see with Tolkien is that because he had endured a lot of suffering already, he was an orphan. He really had developed some spiritual muscle before he even got to the war, okay. because he had been helped to process this. He'd been helped to grieve and to understand, to face up the problem of suffering. So it's a new aspect of suffering at a huge scale, but it's something he's already confronted personally. And we see he has this devotional practice of memorizing prayers that he recites to himself if he can't you know, get to a Mass or a, a communion service. And he had a remarkable memory, and he committed to memory the entire canon of the Mass, for oh. instance. Um, in, and in and Latin? a number of other prayers. In Latin, of course. <laughs> um, and, uh, and actually, in, the, in, the, in Tolkien's faith, I put in an appendix with all of the prayers that we know for a fact that Tolkien knew by heart, because yeah. it really gives us a, a window into his personal devotional life. Like, he knew these prayers. He had a lot of Marian prayers, the Magnificat, the Litany of Loretto. He knew those by heart. And he drew upon them as you know a resource in in time of trouble. Uh, when he comes back uh, after the war, uh, having performed his patriotic duty, uh, did, does, does he is he more respected? Uh, in other words, it frequently happens that Catholics prove themselves to a hostile government because they're willing to shed blood on behalf of that government. Uh, did that uh, help him at all? Well, I certainly think it was an element in, in his motivation, um, because he, he was patriotic, um, and he, he was aware that there was a sense of, well, are Catholics really patriots? And I suspect that this helped him, you know, to, mm -hmm. to show that, like, yes, I was willing to put my life on the line um, for yeah. my country yeah. as a Catholic. When does he, uh, well, how, let's jump to the Inklings. Uh, when, how does that start? Well, he gets to know C.S. Lewis, um, who's the core of the, of the you know, the Inklings. Um, in 1926, um, he's, he's been working for a bit in Leeds. He, he gets his position at Oxford um, as a professor, and he meets Lewis actually at a faculty meeting. And the funny thing is that these men, who had become such great friends and formed the Inklings together, they, they didn't exactly hit it off all that well. <laughs> Lewis said of, of Tolkien, wrote in his diary, ah, you know, pale Lewis sort of chap, no harm in him, just needs a smack or so. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Lewis was an atheist at that time, mm -hmm. um, and he came from an um, Ulster Protestant background, from an, from an anti-Catholic background. So the fact that they became friends is kind of remarkable, mm. but they had these shared literary interests, and they hit it off on terms of, like, oh, we both love the Norse sagas. And then Tolkien, he's starting to be friends with Lewis. He takes a real risk, sort of emotionally, and he shows Lewis the draft of a poem, his, one of his early Middle Earth poems, and he shows it to Lewis and asks for his comments. Now, as a writer, like, this is putting your heart out in a platter. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> and Lewis responds so warmly. He loves it. He offers thoughtful critiques. And this really takes their friendship 
to the next level because now they can really, you know, talk to each other about these things that, that matter. Lewis is also interested in Christianity now. He's, you know, he's, he's on the path, and Tolkien helps him on that path. He's a major influence on Lewis becoming a Christian. Um, and so then the, the nucleus of the Inklings forms around that friendship in, you know, in the 30s and onward. Yeah, we'll come, I, come back on the other side of the break and, and pursue this a little bit more, because what's funny is that, in a sense, Tolkien leads Lewis to faith in Christ but Lewis is the one that's probably best remembered as the uh, more evangelical of the two. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So we'll come back on the other side. We'll, we'll pick, pick at that a little bit. My guest is Dr. Holly Ordway. Uh, it's a remarkable book, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Again, it's, it's, it's rich, uh, nearly 500 pages. And we're going to be talking about this literary group, the Inklings, that were so productive and helpful. Uh, for all of its members. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. He is honored by the Church as a saint with the title of the Angelic Doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the Church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly. 
because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over and you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti, and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the poll of the week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Holly Ordway, author of Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Uh, before the close of last break, we were talking about the development of this literary group called the Inklings, and also how it is that uh, C.S. Lewis, who became, of course, arguably the most effective uh, ap- Christian apologist uh, of the 20th century, was actually led to faith in Christ in a very serious way by uh, a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, But Tolkien is often not thought of as especially outgoing with his faith. But he, he, he was he seemed he must have been comfortable uh sharing his faith, right? Yes, and the interesting thing is that when I looked deeply into his biography for this this book, I found that he really did evangelize. He shared his faith, but he did it on a personal basis. Mm-hmm. He did it in one to one conversations, he did it in writing letters, um and he did it through his fiction implicitly. I think he had a really clear sense of his own sort of gifting and his own his own inclinations. And Lewis had a great gift for public speaking, mm-hmm. for you know public broadcasting on the BBC mm-hmm. um, in in theology. And Tolkien was perfectly willing to you know, do public lectures about literature, but he just felt like no, that's not my area to speak publicly, you know, on the air to a big audience about theology. But he did this witnessing, you know, individually and in these conversations, and you know, had a huge impact um, on C.S. Lewis, you yeah. know, early in his in his life. And one of the big influences that Tolkien had on him was for him to see that the reality of the Christian story is that it is what Lewis later called a myth made fact. Yes, it's legend, as Tolkien, but a legend that became history. Mm-hmm. So it's a story that also really happened. And that sense of the story power of the incarnation, the resurrection, that's something we see in all of Lewis's work. And that was something that Tolkien first shared with him. Yeah. It's, you know, Tolkien who first articulates that idea, and then Lewis grasps it and, and runs with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the beauty, you know, of, of evangelization. Like, Tolkien didn't need <laughs> to be doing these public broadcasts because he, he had helped his friend, and yeah. his friend is yeah. doing those. Yeah. Uh, did, he, did, was he, did he like what Lewis was doing as a, uh, a lay theologian, lay apologist? <laughs> well, he actually wasn't terribly impressed. He, he, wasn't, <laughs> keen, he wasn't keen on lay people 
taking the public teaching role. Yeah. Um, he actually, interestingly, he was very keen on lay people having active roles within the church. In fact, he was he was sort of ahead of his time in a sense, and that in a time when usually the clergy were the ones who were more involved with things. Mm-hmm. Tolkien was was active in lay organizations, but he he wasn't all that keen on you know the the sort of more public figure. But I think partly that's because he saw the dangers you know, of, of it maybe leading to pride. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't in Lewis's case. Lewis remained very humble, but I think Tolkien was aware, like, this is, you know, this has its risks, and I'm, I'm not too keen on this. Well, um, but, you know, different strokes of different folks. Yeah. Were, were, were Catholics a second-class citizen among the Inklings? In, incidentally, no, they weren't. And this is remarkable, because given the anti-Catholic culture that was still very prevalent mm-hmm. in in England and in Oxford, Catholics actually, there were a lot of them amongst the Englands. It wasn't just Tolkien. Um, and Lewis made sure that they were not a second-class citizen. There was a very much a shared, you know, we're all, we're all part of the Inklings. Now, that didn't mean that it always went smoothly. There's one Inkling in particular, Hugo Dyson, who later becomes quite anti-Catholic and causes a, a real tension in the group, and and may even has contributed to it kind of fading off in the last yeah. years. Yeah. Um, but for the for the you know central decades of the Inklings, you know, Lewis was really great at keeping a kind of you know camaraderie, and and they could talk about things. And that's the interesting thing: they didn't just avoid topics of religion. They could go at it, hammer and tongs, and talk about doctrinal issues, sometimes very heatedly, and then. Then they would, you know, have a beer. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I guess he says, uh, Tolkien says, Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. And you point out the, of course, is kind of interesting. It was quite obvious to him. Um, but it's amazing that so many of those who absolutely love Lord of the Rings don't seem to. Um, take away any explicit uh, religious content from it. Yes, and I think this is very much on purpose, because Tolkien's whole mode of working in his stories was implicit, indirect. Mm -hmm. It was there if you wanted to find it, and it was there in the moral fabric of the story, you know, the the moral sort of economy of the story, the values presented in it. Um, and so people are taking it in, you know, the value of humility, the value of self-sacrifice. I mean, Frodo, that's <laughs> just brilliant. That's being taken in by everyone, whether or not they recognize that, oh, that's a Christian virtue. Tolkien's doing it very much under the radar. Um, and that's where I think his word choice is so important. It's fundamentally Catholic, not superficially. Mm-hmm. There's not, like, religious references peppered in. In fact, he's very clear it's not an allegory. He says, I neither preach nor teach, it's a story, but fundamentally, it's infused with his, his faith, with his belief in the one God, um, all of these things are at kind of the bedrock of it, mm. and that's what kind of presents the, it seems like a paradox, how can it be fundamentally religious, and yet people can read it and never notice it, but it's because it's so sort of woven into the fabric that that you take it in without even realizing that you're taking it in. It's it's a monotheistic world, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the 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 ethics don't change from group to group, or the the moral law doesn't change from group to group. Um, 
he deals with evil and moral responsibility. Uh, I think there's one statement from uh, Aragorn in Two Towers where it says, Good and evil have not changed since yesteryear, nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another among men. Uh, so, and there's that wonderful moment of divine providence at the end where Frodo basically fails in the quest. And then um, you have, of course, uh, Gollum seizing the ring, falling into the fire. Middle Earth is saved. Frodo himself is saved. But who's responsible for that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be where, here's the Tolkien's genius, because he notes on one level, in terms of the story, it's it's just a logical unfolding of, of what the characters choose to do. You can it's a great story on that level, absolutely. But also the very reason that Gollum is there is because Frodo and Sam and Bilbo have showed mercy. Yeah. They didn't kill him when they had a chance. Um, and mercy is a fundamentally Christian value yes. um, over against you know pagan values. There's a, there's a lot of influence you know from the Norse epics and Beowulf and whatnot in in Lord of the Rings. This is a major influence as well. But mercy was not a pagan value; it was a weakness. Right. So this idea that you know Frodo has shown mercy and pity to Gollum, that's what enables providence to work through to enable the quest to be fulfilled even though Frodo is broken at the end. Yeah. He, he's taken past his endurance. And that's very much a theological reflection. And Tolkien talks about this in his letters, um, that, that on the theological level, that's the working of providence. And this is Tolkien's genius. It's not allegorical, um, but there's this other level of meaning that's available if you want to look into it, and it adds to the richness of the story. Yeah. Um the idea where did you come up with the idea of a hobbit well that is a mystery he just wrote on a blank page one day grading papers you know in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit and from there came all of the hobbit and <laughs> the lord of the rings <laughs> wow uh did he share these stories with his kids i mean who he who was he sharing material with well, he'd been writing the Middle Earth stories since, really, you know, he was a young man um, all his adult life. Nice. Um, shared them a little bit with Edith. Um, he tells the stories of the Hobbit and starts to read them to them. Um, and then as he's writing Lord of the Rings, which becomes a much bigger, you know, story, he's sharing it with, um, with his son Christopher and also to C.S. Lewis. Um, and here we can see that mutual support because, you know, Tolkien had, had helped Lewis to become a Christian, without which he wouldn't have had probably the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, he might, he might never have become a Christian, or he might have done it much later. And then Tolkien says of Lewis that for, men, for a long time, Lewis was his only reader, and if it wasn't for Lewis's constant encouragement, he would never have finished The Lord of the Rings. Wow. So Lewis gave this great gift of encouragement to, to Tolkien, and so they, the two men really in this beautiful friendship, helped each other to write their great masterworks. Given the extraordinary popularity of Lord of the Rings, is there, how have critics viewed it? Well, it was, it was pretty puzzling to critics at first. They didn't know what to make of it, and they, a lot of them didn't like it very much. They thought it was sort of childish. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just didn't fit preconceptions about what a grown-up novel would be like. <laughs> right. But, Tolkien, he, he's kind of won them over. I mean, I think, honestly, I think The Lord of the Rings is a masterpiece, and 500 years from now, he'll be on the great books list alongside, you know, 
Chaucer and Shakespeare and Austin and, and Dickens because it has such a staying power. And now, as more serious literary critics have looked at it, I said, oh, well, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And yeah. there really is yeah. tremendous literary work. We've got about three minutes. Um, tell, talk to us about what he means by the great catastrophe. Well, eucatastrophe means the good catastrophe. It's the thing that it seems like it's overturning everything. It seems like a disaster, but it turns to good. It's the unexpected happy ending. And we see this, for instance, in The Lord of the Rings, when we think Frodo and Sam are lost at Mount Doom, and the eagles come and they rescue them. And Tolkien says that the greatest eucatastrophe is the resurrection. Um, the resurrection of Christ is the eucatastrophe you know, of, of all of human history, yeah. and it it has all the power of a story, and it actually happened. And he says that this is why we have this lifting of the heart at a happy ending in a story. It's because whether we know it or not, we are participating in the great eucatastrophe that happens in reality. Yeah. Was it with you that I, I read that Tolkien, uh, when, he, when he was writing about the eucatastrophe, the coming of the eagles at the end there, that he blotted the page with his tears? And the scene in Cormallon, yeah, when it's actually when they're being honored by, uh, okay. by, the, by the minstrel. And I've actually seen that page um, in Marquette. It really is blotted with his tears. He was so moved by it um, that he, he wept. <laughs> it, it blurred the ink as he was writing. After so much suffering, these humble hobbits are being honored. Yes. And he was so moved by this that he wept. <laughs> A few uh, questions of how did he how did he respond to the Second Vatican Council? Um, well, that's a very complex question okay. because there are lots of different things going on. Um, he didn't like the loss of Latin. He loved Latin. Yep. He was very sad, very personally grieved to see Latin go, but he accepted it. Um, he continued to attend mass. He went to a Novus Ordo parish at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. um, and there were many things about the Second Vatican Council that really resonated with his spirituality. For instance, um, the decree on ecumenism. Yeah. You know, he had been living out that articulation of the Church's teaching his whole life, yep. with the inklings with his other friends. Um, and so, you know, he's, and he's, he's very, uh, I think, alert to the fact that there were, there were good things that came out of it that, that really that he honored. Yeah. Uh, Holly, thanks so much. Uh, this is a great contribution. and uh, My pleasure. Yeah, we'll talk again. Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Dr. Holly Ordway, it's called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. It really is a, a work of uh, magnificent proportions, 500 pages, t attention to detail, just beautiful. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. 
Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. St. Jose Maria Escriva says that we are called to light up the pathways of this earth by being sowers of peace and joy. This comes from being aware that we are sons and daughters of God. On the road of life, though, we find dangers, but God walks with us every step of our life, pouring out the gifts of His Holy Spirit upon us. Our Lady is our companion, like GPS in our car, connected to the cloud and bringing the latest updates to help us navigate our journey and get out of traffic on the way to the eternal kingdom. We don't want to get into family fights on our way to God's vacation destination, but we should be these sowers of peace and joy. We shouldn't accept substitutes, accept only the authentic identity of being His children, His sons and daughters. Let's grow in happiness and bring peace to those around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Well, thanks for being with me, and let me once again congratulate uh, Real Presence Radio. They're celebrating their 19th year with EWTN, and uh, they've got a great team there. Uh, they're on 27 stations now. They've really grown. North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Wyoming. Congratulations, guys, from all your friends here at EWTN. Let me remind you that uh, our conversations that we have on this program usually have follow-up information available in the Crested Guest Archives, books that we mention on the program. Uh, virtually all of them uh, are available at AveMariaRadio.net. And certainly Holly's uh, book, Tolkien's Faith, A Spiritual Biography, is available there. Her her um, um, testimony story, I think it's called Not God's Type, that's available there as well. And she also uh, has another book dealing with Tolkien's uh, understanding of modern literature. All those available in the online bookstore. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow for another edition. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.